1: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Getting In, A College Coach Conversation. I wish you guys could have all been here for the last five minutes or so because there's a lot of pre-show banter today, and I'm a little punchy. I do to warn you, I had two cavities filled, and um, I have a little bit of a headache, and I'm just a little in a mood. But hey, happy Thanksgiving to everyone. I hope you had a good break, and I hope that you got essay work done if you are a senior because that's what you have to do over Thanksgiving break. And I know you probably didn't have anything else to do. It's not like people were going to visit friends and family, most likely anyway. Um, All right, this week... Early decision, early action, priority decisions are going to be starting to come in. Um, We actually already have one school who's already sent out early decisions. Um, So we're going to share more about what you can expect. Also, um, we're going to talk about student loan payments. Some of you are going to find that those are coming due. So we're going to cover those. Uh, But before we get to all of that... Um, as I've mentioned in the past, we taped these in advance, but earlier this week, I was actually on Good Morning America uh, because there was yet another admission scandal. Um, I don't know if you all heard about it, but the Harvard fencing coach who was fired last year after a school investigation um, was formally charged this week with taking $1.5 million in bribes from a wealthy businessman who was also charged. Uh, and the reason that he took the money and the other guy gave it was so that his two children would be recruited to the the Harvard fencing team. Uh, And so now they're facing charges and who knows, maybe they'll go to jail. I mean, of all the stupid things in the world that people could do, I don't know why they keep doing this. But um, what was fun, obviously, it's always great to be on Good Morning America. Um, I did a, probably I spent about 15 to 20 minutes doing a taped interview, and then the segment aired, and they aired one comment, which is what happens. (laughs) Um, And the comment that they aired was uh, to the effect that when people do things like this, it gives other people the impression that the only way to get into these schools is to either have a lot of connections or to have a lot of money. Um, Shannon Vasconcelos, who you all know, uh, is becoming my counterpart when we do our Q&As. Hi, Shannon. Thanks for being here. Hi, Beth. So Shannon and I thought that it would be interesting to share everything that I shared after <laughs> that one quote that um, didn't make it onto the segment. Um, right. And so so Shannon, as I shared with you, um, they had, when they asked me if I wanted to be on, they basically said, you know, kind of like, hey, can you come on and talk about this scandal? And, um, you, and you and I have been talking about this since then. And the irony, yeah. of course, being that if you don't have a lot of money, place like harvard or the ivy league is one of the best places to go if you can get in right
2: right and of course getting in is the hard part but if you can get in they will make it affordable to you right if you if you don't have a lot of money if you do have a lot of money not so much you're going to be expected to pay full price
1: right right exactly which is great the great thing I think, actually, about um, the Ivy League and similarly highly selective schools where they have policies like this, which is basically like, if you have the need, we're going to meet the need. Yes. If you don't have need, then you're going to pay full price. You're going to
2: pay, right. So that's one thing that people really have to know um, about the Ivy League colleges and schools of similar selectivity. They have zero merit-based scholarships. So if you don't qualify for need-based financial aid, you are in fact paying full price. And I always get questions, people push back on it, but there has to be some secret money mm-hmm. that they could possibly send my way. Really, none. No. But if you are at um, a lower income, um, you would see lots and lots of financial aid from Harvard or similar schools. Um, I actually saw, I was looking on Harvard's website to check out some of their statistics, and they had an such an interesting um, statistic on their webpage that said Harvard it would be more affordable than your in-state public university for 90% of the American population.
1: Ah, oh, wow. Except yeah. 90% <laughs> of the American population is obviously not getting in um, Correct. to Harvard. So that's yes. the challenge. And, and yes. one of the things that the producers said to me in the email was sort of, are good grades still enough? You know, is it just, is it, is it still just okay to get good grades? And of course, my response was
2: It's been a it long is, time since that was the case. Yes, if
1: ever. It, exactly. So I would say that at least for the last 35 plus years and possibly longer, yeah. good grades have never been enough to get into uh, a highly selective school. And actually, on the show, and I, I jotted it down because I'm like, I know we've talked about this a few times. Um, over time, and we'll probably do another segment um, sooner than later. But in our May third show back in 2018, in our July 14th show in 2016, and in our April second show in 2015, we talked about getting into an Ivy. Um, we talked about something called the distinguishing excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, so the reality of it is that it has really not ever or not been enough to just get good grades. For at least, like I said, 35 to 40 years. Um, certainly, back when I was applying to college um, and earlier than that, there was a lot more expected right. of a student, right? And, um, you know, at the very core of it, when you are reading files at these types of institutions, and as listeners probably know, I used to um, read applications and make decisions at Penn. One of the Ivies, and you're really looking for students who are having an impact on their community. And often, what you're looking for is an impact that is greater than simply the high school community. It goes often beyond the local community into the regional and national, and sometimes even international community. Yeah. Um, because what they're they're looking to do is they want to um, admit. Future leaders, they want to admit the pe- the scientists who are in those labs right now finding uh, the vaccine for coronavirus. They mm-hmm. want to admit the entrepreneur who had an idea to create Moderna, who's one of the um, pharmaceutical companies coming out with one of these vaccines and staff it with the best scientists who are going to find the vaccine for coronavirus, right? Yep. It, they're, they're looking for future politicians um, who hopefully are going to get the vaccine out to everybody um, and set appropriate health policies in this country to, you know, make sure that we are prepared for another pandemic should one come our way, right? They're looking for those students who are going to have an impact on the world. And the way that they determine that is by looking at the impact they have already had. So, while you know, there are so many wonderful students out there who are getting straight A's in a very rigorous curriculum and if they were able to test, have great test scores. Um, and they're really lovely, wonderful kids within their school community, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are having the larger impact that we see a lot of students have. Um, and certainly, having um, money, you know, growing up in a family of means does mean that you're going to have access to greater opportunities. And it absolutely yes. could mean that your parents are getting you started with a sport like fencing, which is not something that you generally just do like, right? It's not a pickup sport that you call your friends up and go, hey, let's over to head over to the, the local <laughs> fencing court and Put on our gear and and start flashing <laughs> our sabers and fence, right? You know, most likely right. you're picking up a pickup baseball game or football or basketball okay. or something like right. that, right? So, there are absolutely opportunities that come with being a student growing up in a family yes. where they have money, right? But there are lots of students who also are able to show that engagement in the world around them and do amazing things. That doesn't have to relate to their parents' ability to pay for or fund those opportunities. And we saw those students as well. So, you know, a lot of times we see wealthy families paying a lot of money for their child to go overseas and do a really interesting community service project. But guess what? There are just as many students who are growing up in communities with huge needs, and they are setting out and helping to solve those needs locally rather than you know, having to hop on a plane and go to Africa to, yes. um, you know, dig a well. So, um, I, I really would encourage families to focus on the things that they can control. Understand yes. that the acceptance rate to the IVs is in the single digits, mm-hmm. and um, and therefore, you know, single digits acceptance <laughs> means that most kids are not getting in. Um, right. I'm then-
2: so actually so curious, Beth, from your experience reading at Penn. So, with single digit acceptance rates, they're mm-hmm. denying 90, 95% of the students mm-hmm. who apply. Of those 90, 95% that are being denied, I'm guessing the majority of those students are essentially straight A students with good test scores. They just don't have that extra something. So it's, it's not full of 90% of uh, you know their C and D students who are applying to Penn and Harvard. It's all straight A students, right?
1: Give Can or take. It's give or take. It is. It's mo- it's it's strong students who are recognized as really great students in their high school. Um, they've done. They've been involved. You know. They've played sports. They've uh, been yeah. involved in student government. They've done whatever it is is interesting to them. They filled their time with interesting things, but yeah. they just haven't. You know, kind of gone far enough and. Right. And, and that is the challenge, because if you look around and you see, well, I'm one of the better students at my high school, and you have yes. to keep in mind how many tens of thousands of high schools there are in this country. And if right. the very best student at every single high school in the country applied to each one of these schools, which, by the way, is not an infrequent occurrence, right. then, you know, then you and they only are filling a class of 2000 students maybe 4000 i mean cornell's the biggest ivy they they have a class size of about 5000 students per year that's a that's a huge class for them to fill but if they are getting 45000 applications for 5000 spots yeah the numbers are not in your favor right yeah. and um and i think that rather than looking at these bribery scandals and thinking, well, that's the only way I'm getting in and they're only taking those kinds of kids, understand that A, hopefully the bribery kids are representing the tiniest little sliver (laughs) Um, And that know that the schools are working to ferret that out. Um, But also, yes, being someone who has a history of substantial giving can give you an advantage at these schools. But very few families have a history of substantial giving, right? So it it is the bulk of the applicant pool is made up of students who don't have any particular um, connection, who are growing up in all different types of households. And um, you can't control that. All you can control is how you are preparing yourself to be right. a successful applicant um, at a school like
3: this. Um, yeah. Exactly. So,
2: yeah. And I think another interesting statistic that I saw on the Harvard's website, that they were kind of bragging about it, but I looked at it in a different way. Again, I'm looking at the financial statistics, and they said um, 20% of the students at Harvard pay nothing for Harvard. They're on full financial aid, Mm
3: -hmm. which is
2: great. And then they said 55% of students um, receive some type of financial aid. But that means 45% of students at Harvard are receiving no financial aid. So those are very, very rich people who can afford to pay 75, dollars $80,000 a year. So it, it certainly does not look like, you know, the general population. Uh, and that's what, you know, you talked about having privilege certainly helps you along the way in, um, you know, kind of meeting some of the criteria for getting into Harvard. But they're very aware of that. And they know that that is not a good thing to be so have their population of students be overwhelmingly from very privileged backgrounds. So they're really trying to reach out to lower income students, students from more diverse backgrounds. And that's why they have the financial aid policy that they do, where if you make less than $65,000 a year, you pay nothing for Harvard. If you make less than $150,000, you pay no more than 10% of your income, which is much, much more generous than most colleges where it tends to be more like you're paying 20, 25% of your income each year to college. Harvard's very rich. They have the money to do that. So, I I would hate it if, um, you know, lower income students think this is not the place for me because I don't have money I don't have connections they really need you and they want you at Harvard right. and they will make it affordable to you uh, if and again you have to be academically and otherwise sort of the top tier right. um, as you talked about and have some something special about you.
1: Right, and 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 I guess the other the thing I would add too is that of that forty five percent who are receiving no aid at all, I would guess that there is a percentage of that student body who really can't afford to write the <laughs> right. check for seventy five thousand. That's true. That's 000, true. Very true. Right? Who have taken out substantial loans because it's Harvard? I, I don't think that's a great yeah. idea either. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not when they probably had offers from other schools where they could go for um, a very very little amount of money and get a great education. So, um, yeah.
2: And actually, if you look on our blog for, for listeners, if you go to blog.getintocollege.com, I wrote a blog post. If you search for, I think it's does where you go to college matter. It has a title, mm-hmm. something like that. And I sort of summarized a lot of research on this that showed that for privileged folks, for actually for on average, whether you go to a selective school or a less selective school, if you are a smart, ambitious kid, you're going to do fine. Mm-hmm. In life, you're going yes. to make a high income and it actually tends to thats on average um, who it does matter for is students um, from lower income households for underrepresented uh, minority students. They actually do get quite an advantage um, from attending a more selective university. And there's a lot of sociological reasons why that might be Um But again, so that's something to think about. If you are at a higher income and you're fairly privileged to begin with, may not be worth the money to get yourself highly in debt for a school like that. But for a lower income kid, it it may be a school, if you're at that academic level, you want to look at schools like that and not um, necessarily, you know, just look at the schools right next door.
1: Right, right, exactly. So... You know, I think at the end of the day, I would look to this scandal as more dumb people doing dumb things and less, oh, well, this means I'm not getting into Harvard because these people are doing these things and they're preventing you from getting into Harvard. I think, again, at the end of the day, these are people doing stupid things. And the thing that you need to focus on is, is there something that I truly am passionate about? And I'm not sure I'm crazy about the word passion, but something that I really enjoy that I can really pour a lot of energy and time into that has the potential to be more impactful. And just a very quick example would be a student who's maybe got a talent for writing so they're doing the most rigorous curriculum they can all across the board, but particularly in English, they are writing for their school newspaper or literary magazine or both. They are editor-in-chief maybe of the literary magazine or the, edit- or the newspaper or both. Um, they're writing for a local paper. They're entering their work in competitions and they're winning. They are doing maybe a selective summer program that is based entirely on talent and not on ability to pay. Um, they may be, already published um, and or have a novel in the works, Uh, these are students who are This is an example of a student who has taken something that they really love and are turning into more of a distinguishing excellence. And that is where you need to put your time and energy if your goal is to go to one of these schools. And even if you don't make the cut at a school where this acceptance rate is in single digits, you will make yourself incredibly appealing to a whole host of other schools where they may... Give you a very attractive financial aid package and therefore, or and probably be more scholarship based, merit based financial package. Um, And uh, that is going to probably set you on a uh, if not better path, certainly equivalent path to anything you would find at one of these ivies. So put away the checkbook. <laughs> Stop worrying <laughs> about saving up enough money to put through a bribe. Yeah. Exactly. We can see this doesn't end well. Lori Lachlan's still in jail. I just saw her husband had to shave his head so he looks tougher before he goes into jail. And, you know, I'm being a little flippant here because I just the stupidity of it all is continues to boggle my mind, but you know, this is not the real world and you just need to focus on your, what you can control anyway. All right. I'm beating the dead horse. Shannon, thank (laughs) you for joining me today to allow me to express some of the things that I was hoping to express uh, uh, earlier this week. And uh, uh, all right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, student loan payments, Um, And if you have some do some things that you want to be thinking about, so don't go away.
0: To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. I am excited to be joined by my colleague, Stacy McFeeters. Hi, Stacy. Hi, Beth. How are you? Hi, everyone. I'm- Good. So Stacy's a former financial aid officer uh, at Emerson and Elm Colleges. She also is a former vice president of student loans, well, education finance student loans uh, at JP Morgan Chase. She's the perfect person to talk to us today about loans. And the original topic today was just to talk about, okay, it's time to start getting ready to pay back your loans. Um, but you know, COVID. And so maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the current kind of state of the student loan world as it relates to COVID because COVID is having impact.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously we're talking primarily about student loans. Um, In many ways, primarily about federal student loans, which, of course, both students and parents can borrow. Um, As most people probably know, especially those who have borrowed, uh, as a part of the stimulus bill that came out in um, March, there were some provisions specific to student loans um, that allowed borrowers to take some time off and to have some interest-free time on, on, on their student loans. Um, Originally, that was awarded through September, and in August, the uh, provision was extended through the end of the year. So basically what that means, for anybody with federal student loans, you uh, presently are not required to make payments. Um, Any loans that you have uh, that would be accruing interest are not because they are set to zero. Um, If you had been in collections for delinquency or forbearance, that has all been uh, paused, I mean, at the present moment, that is all in place through uh, December 31st of this year. So the long and short of it is uh, nobody is currently required to be making federal student loan payments. Um, For those who have private student loans, different story. You may be having to make those payments at this point. Some lenders did award some um, forbearance type opportunities, um, but for federal loans, you are in a timeout period.
1: Got it. Although I would say I know that with my stepson, we've suggested you should continue to pay. Right. Yep. So he graduated yep. in May yep. um, from grad school, had loans that he was were coming due. And our advice was you have the means you should continue to pay. He Just because, because you can put off paying those. Is it always a good idea to do that?
4: Uh, so I mean in many cases it probably means that you're just putting off the inevitable and so what we have been telling families or or, or, or borrowers since um, you know since obviously this all began is if you do have the ability to make any kind of payment you absolutely should right. and why is that well first of all you're 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 probably avoiding the inevitable but you're also in a zero percent interest period so if you are making payments you are paying your principal down mm-hmm. so you do that, the sooner you're done. That's sort of the whole name of the game. Right. So, if you've had the opportunity to do that, do it. Um, if you didn't know that that was a thing, you still have, you know, a good 45-ish days. Um, if you get a nice little windfall for the holidays, get a payment in before the end of the year, and that way you can start to pay down that principal.
1: And and then, is, your, is it your sense that it will just be done at the end of the year, or... What's ahead of us? You know, should, <laughs> should people be gearing up to start paying in January because they're going to have to, or what's coming? Uh, so if you if you, know, if you yeah. can predict it, I will, you know, kudos to you because exactly, exactly. that's everyone's asking this
4: question. What so the hell is coming? The, the million dollar question or, <laughs> you know, $1.4 trillion question. Um, so it, it, the reference there is that there's about $1.4 trillion in federal student loan debt outstanding right now. Um actually combined federal and and private student loan debt. It's a lot of money. Um, There's a lot of rumbling about something must be done. So, you know, no, I don't have a crystal ball. Um, However, I can tell you some of the things that we know are very much being talked about. Nothing is definite. Um, There is for sure a lot of discussion about extending the provisions. (laughs) So at a minimum, That's something everybody could keep an eye out for, and that would be to extend the existing provisions that we just talked about. Um, There's also a tremendous amount of discussion, obviously, in the political arena about some type of uh, federal student loan forgiveness. That is one that I don't even want to jump on and guess. Um, it feels like something might happen around that, but there's also a lot of opposition, and the opposition is obviously um, coming from a place of. But does that solve our problem? Right. You know, okay. is that putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, which is the expensive uh, cost of college? Um, it certainly could infuse sh- some cash into um, into the economy by allowing you know student loan borrowers to to free up cash flow. So, a lot of back and forth on that. Um, So, the reality is we do expect there will be some action after the first of the year, possibly after the inauguration around student loans. At this point, we don't know exactly what that would look like. So, I can tell you we are really guiding people to start preparing to repay. Um, Can certainly talk a little bit more about that, but wanted to see if you want to dive a little deeper into what we think might be.
1: I mean, I, I saw an article that, um, you know, that if when Biden comes in, that he could potentially he has the executive power to forgive fifty thousand dollars worth of loans per person and. Um, I'm mostly going to leave my personal feelings out about this, but I did read a really interesting article that someone else on our team shared that basically showed that really that is a huge sum of money and that a lot of the people who would receive it really would be people who could afford to pay off their loans because they incurred those loans doing things like getting their MBA or becoming doctors or lawyers or majoring in something like my stepson, like accounting, where he is... Got his his master's now, and he's going to be a CPA. And he, I'm very proud of him. He's earned a great starting salary, and that's really wonderful. But the reality is, he doesn't need to have his loans forgiven. Right. Um, if he was on the show right now, he might say, <laughs> Well, wait yeah. a second. Yeah. And I like yeah. that too. I really do. And I, I understand the arguments on either side. But um, so there, I've completely shared my opinion on this. But. <laughs> I would prefer that if there was going to be loan forgiveness, it would go where it was most needed, right? To students maybe who didn't complete college and, and don't have the benefits um, that they were supposed to get from taking out that loans. And I think I saw in that article that the majority of those students or the ones who are really coming from the underserved populations have a lot less outstanding debt, but it is more crushing because of they don't have the jobs that really allow them to pay
4: for it. So, yeah. 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 So, that, that is one of the challenges, and that is, you know, if there is to be forgiveness, what is the right way to do it? Um, as you well know, and, and, and a lot of the folks listening well know, I've spent the better part of my career focusing with a lot of my attention on student loans. I have my own personal opinions as well. Um, I do think that, yes, there is the opportunity, from what we understand, for an immediate executive order, um, which would obviously then uh, supersede the need to go to Congress, where there will be a battle over this. Um, not sure that that will be enacted. There's a lot of reasons. But the reality is, there are a lot of arguments to be made for, let's take the time to figure out the best way to do that. this for those who need it the most. Right. May or may not happen. Um so what I would say, you know, in general, and, and I've heard from a lot of borrowers, they're like, I'm just holding out to see what happens. Yes. Not sure about I, that. I that could get you in trouble. So uh, my best advice to folks in repayment or who, who, who you know, do have current student loans, you know, you might want to think about getting prepared Uh, the provisions end in January for returning borrowers, borrowers who had been in repayment prior to (laughs) um, the provisions. You're going to have a payment due in January, if not early February, be prepared Mm -hmm. Um, for those who graduated anytime, sort of after the provisions went in March, actually, and it really could be December graduates as well. So remember, folks who graduated last December would have been in their grace period when um, the first provision was enacted. So in essence, anybody who graduated after last December probably hasn't had to make a student loan payment. Um, For those who haven't, you should be, keeping in touch with your servicers because you also will be expected to make a payment. Um, I know that some services are being super proactive, reaching out and saying, just remember, payments are going to start again. Pick the right payment option for those who are in, in income-driven repayment programs. Certify your income so your payment you know, matches what you make. Um, by and large, I'd be prepared. You know, yeah. something is probably going to happen, but if it doesn't, you don't want to be caught unaware and end up in a delinquency situation. Right. Um, and, and you really don't want to ignore it to see if something good comes your way because there's a lot of discussions about a lot of different things.
1: Right. And it may take quite a bit of time to for that to come to anywhere. And as you point out, you don't want to wind up in delinquency in the meantime exactly. where… You're just thinking, well, I don't need to worry about it yet. You took out the loans, and now it's time to start thinking about it. And maybe okay. there will be something that comes along that helps out, but that doesn't mean you can't make some payments in the meantime. Exactly. Anything? Um, anything else that you would add on? on you know, on this front, um, just things for families to think about as repayment. Comes near just yep. nuts and bolts related to this.
4: Yeah, so we've talked a lot about sort of what happens with federal student loans, and the reality is, if there's going to be any kind of type of forgiveness, it, it it by and large has to be around the federal programs. I I could, you know, I could be I've
1: been wrong. Private in my banks life. are not going to suddenly go, hey, you know what? We don't yeah. need your money. And the
4: federal government is also not going to subsidize paying back. Uh, private student loans. So, right. if you have those, you've got to be making sure you're you're thinking of that with a separate, you know, separate mindset. Those have to be paid. Um, that's a debt to a bank or a lender of any kind. Same implications you would have if you blew off your mortgage or your car loan. So, just make sure you're making those payments. But having worked in the the industry in the student loan arena for a very long time, student loans of all kinds are meant to be friendly debt. Mm-hmm. So for those who you know are crushed by their debt or you know ignoring it, not your best bet. Mm-hmm. The reality is you have to, you know, be prepared to borrow to, to pay back the loans that you've borrowed. Communicate with your servicers. Servicers are super, super willing to work with you. And unlike almost every other debt form out there, there are a lot of repayment options. You're going to be given one which is your standard 120 payments. But there are a variety of other payment methods that will allow you to make smaller payments. So we hear a lot of folks saying, I just can't pay anything. I can't pay, so I'm not going to pay. Right. Whereas if you work with your servicer, they might start making, you know, allowing you to make smaller payments at the beginning so you don't end up in a, in a perilous credit situation.
1: Right. Exactly. And that's what you really want to avoid. And it's that's when things start to snowball and it becomes truly out of hand and i think for those families who are listening who are um in the process so maybe you're a senior maybe you have a junior maybe you are a sophomore or a freshman you know now is the time to get in your head that you should be looking to what is a realistic amount that you can pay so that maybe you are taking out a little bit in loans but you're not taking out so much that it's crushing debt we just shannon and i just did a segment on um the whole Harvard scandal and one of the things we were talking about is that 45% of the students at Harvard don't receive any aid whatsoever um, because they didn't qualify for it. And my assessment was that certainly while probably a big chunk of those families can write a check for 75 dollars $80,000 a year and no problem, I would guess that there is also a decent percentage of students who, uh, who are mortgaging themselves to the hilt Correct. and their families to go and who may be well graduating with couple hundred thousand dollars in debt because it's Harvard. And that is, you know, you better get a really high paying job out of there, or that's going to be debt that follows you around for a long, long time. And that doesn't feel good to have debt that you can't, you feel like what you just said, right? Well, I can't pay more than 10 bucks a month. So therefore I'm just not going to pay anything, right? Like, yep. yikes, Yeah, not good.
4: Yeah, you know, we're using Harvard in this example, but I could literally replace Harvard with any school name. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're, if you're over borrowing as a family and you're saying things like, let's worry about it later, not really a good plan. No. Um, you know, so I think student loan debt is a reality. Paying for college is a reality, but there's ways to do it. Um, realistically, you know, if the student is borrowing, you really don't want them borrowing more sum total than they could make in their first year. Yeah. So, if, you know, for those families who are listening that are making decisions, might be seniors in high school, think about that. If the student is, you know, not looking at a high-paying field or needs to go immediately back to graduate school, borrowing $30,000, dollars $50,000 a year to cover a balance probably doesn't make sense. Yeah. So, you know, let's not all hang our hopes on on loan forgiveness. Um because I think one of the things that's come up a lot in conversations is what happens if it happens now? Is it going to happen again? Are right. we going to eliminate student loans? So let's, let's not count on what could be. Let's plan on what is. Exactly. Uh, but that's you know, a huge reality.
1: Yes. That's a very practical way of looking at life that I think you and I share. Not
4: everyone does. But (laughs) we're just
1: pleading with those of you who are listening to adopt this. Stacey, thank you so much for joining today. This was really helpful. And um, and at least for me, from my perspective, given that we have a student at home with loans, um, really insightful. So I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks so much. All right, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're talking about what to expect with these deferral, I'm sorry, these early decision, early action, priority decisions that are going to be coming through really any day now. So don't go away.
0: To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show.
1: All right, everybody, welcome back to Getting In a College Coach Conversation. Um, We've been talking about all kinds of things today, and now we're getting to something that is going to be super pressing for a lot of our seniors Um, And here to discuss it with me is Abigail Anderson, who is my colleague and a former admissions officer at Reed College. Hi, Abigail. How are you? Hi, Beth. I'm
3: doing well. Thanks for bringing me on for this segment.
1: Absolutely. Well, actually, we are, so this is airing on December 3rd, and we know that in the next probably week or two from December 3rd, a lot of schools with priority deadlines, early action deadlines, and early decision deadlines are going to be releasing their decisions. However, this is, it's only actually November 19th when we're taping this and you had student yesterday get into Tulane, which is very exciting, early decision.
3: So exciting and so shocking. I think he was on the phone or Zoom with me maybe 30 minutes after he got the decision, and he was still in shock. He knew the decision was coming, but was just floored very early.
1: Very, very early. Yeah. So Tulane has over the years done that, although I didn't recall it being this early. And then I look back and said, oh, I guess sometimes it was. So at any rate, if you applied early decision to Tulane, you already have your decision. And I hope you got good results. It seems as though some students that we worked with did. So um, that's always nice to to start the year with that. And I think we've seen some other kids get into either Arizona State or the University of Arizona. Mm -hmm. Um, So we definitely are seeing that some decisions are starting to come out, Um, but the big decisions are are still coming. Uh, and And really what we wanted to talk about today more than anything is just kind of what to expect, you know, what you might receive, Um, so, uh, let's talk about early action. Um, what are typically the decisions that come for early action? What do those look like?
3: So the way I think about it is there are three possible outcomes from early action. You could be admitted, which is great. Celebrate, Mm -hmm. win. Uh, On the far end of the spectrum, you could be denied, which would be a disappointment. But I think we're going to talk about there's something to be learned from being denied an early action, and you can move forward with it as a learning experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the third outcome is being deferred from the early pool. Right.
1: And we're going to talk about, actually, next week, we have a a segment on the show where we're going to be talking in detail about what do you do if you are deferred. But um, what are some key things that students need to understand about, just in general, what does a deferral mean?
3: So I think, you know, at its simplest, it's, we are not giving you a decision right now. Right. You have to wait longer or you get to wait longer. You <laughs> no. uh, have to, I think it's how students really see it, but uh, you have to wait longer and we're going to read your application within the regular decision pool.
1: Right, exactly. And I think at some schools, that might mean that it actually gets a second read. At other schools, it could just mean that When they are considering their giant pool from regular decision, they're going to see where your application falls. And I think that's probably most common at schools with really big applicant pools where their admissions process is probably a little bit more numerical based, right? They're they're kind of looking at what were the grades, the rigor of the curriculum. Are you more or less falling into that group of students that we're admitting this year because we've determined that, you know, this set, we, we're going to admit this many students, and you fall within that group, right? Yeah. So, yeah. One thing that I've seen, and I was curious about your thoughts, we've seen it in the past, where sometimes I suspect that students are getting deferred, deferred because they didn't get to the application. How frequently do you think that happens?
3: Uh, so, you, you just, I feel like you just read my mind. I had the exact same thought. I just went was, there. Yeah, which is, oh, are we going to talk about that? <laughs> I do think that it happens. And I was just thinking about <clears throat> reading articles in the last few days and thinking about how higher ed and admissions is changing right now because of COVID. I actually wonder if we're going to see more students deferred from early rounds this year because there might even be, you know, there's there's schools that do tend to read numerically or really focused on grades and test scores might not have test scores for a lot of students this year. So I was conjecturing in my mind like oh I wonder if we're going to see even more students moved into that larger pool and being deferred into regular this year. But that's definitely something that we see. I don't Beth, I don't know if this is accurate. So you need to correct me, but I don't know if we've ever gotten confirmation from any school that that's truly what they're doing that they haven't read the application, but I think we've seen on our end enough Pattern over the years, to yeah,
1: we have not, we have no confirmation. Um, it's anecdotal, and yeah. I want to, I think we should stress that this is happening only at schools where they have, where mostly it's a numerical read where they are powering through tens of thousands of applications, probably with a smaller admission staff. But the more selective you get, Those applications are all being read. And if you're reading as an admissions officer, you might be reading seven days a week and you might be reading from the second you wake up in the morning until you go to sleep at night and maybe you're going to sleep at night at like one, two, three o'clock in the morning. Those files are all getting read. Oh, yeah. For sure. Right. So if it's holistic, they are.
3: I always joked that when I was an admissions officer at 24, I was wearing reading glasses. Like, that's how bad my eyesight became in reading season because that's how much we were reading. Right. 24.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's not right. I didn't like wearing them at 50. And now, look, I have, like, glasses that I actually need all the time, not just reading glasses. But I'm powering through right now, like, trying to do it without them. But what's interesting here is we are talking about early action. What's um, what's a key point to know? Um, because I do think this is—I mean—early action, and really, we should lump priority in here too, because they're really basically the same thing. Yeah. Because when you get accepted, what what's next for the student?
3: You still have to apply everywhere. Regular decision, right? So if it's early action, you're just getting an earlier answer mm-hmm. about your application. So you still want to move forward with your regular decision applications. Um, you might, and I think we've we've talked about this a lot on the show in the past. You might change your list as a result of the decision that you were given. So maybe if you were admitted at an early action school that's really towards the top of your list, and it's a school you can really see yourself enrolling at, you might shorten or remove some schools from your regular decision list. You might mm-hmm. save yourself the application fees or the time writing the essays. Um, If you are denied, you can think about, what does that mean about my application, about my strength in the pool this year? Maybe you'll change and add a few more no-problem schools or remove some of those far reaches knowing what an answer was at an early school that was less of a reach. Yeah, my favorite is when you get
1: denied at the early or deferred at the early, and then you add more selective schools. Um, this is not logical, people. And I know it feels like, wow, they didn't take me, but I'm going to increase my chances of getting in. No, that's an early sign. And granted, not all schools make the same decision, but if um, it is something to probably pay attention to that you know, if you were already knew you weren't going to be particularly competitive there and then the decision confirms that now is not the time to na- add more selective schools than the one that just deferred you. So just throwing that out there.
3: I totally agree with you. And I have this thought, Beth, I have a few students that in the past um did the logical thing with their early action decisions where maybe they were denied from an early action school and they, you know, it hurts. It's hard not to take the heart out of it and it hurts. And, but they did take the time and spend about a week and then they got logical and they thought, okay, if I didn't get into the early action reach school, maybe I'll try to do early decision round two mm-hmm. at a school that's slightly more within range for me. And then That can turn out really well for students. So it's hard to be logical when there's so much heart involved, but it's important to be. Right, Right. which is why I know,
1: um, and I do want to get to early decision here too, but um, you made note of, you know, maybe now those are fewer essays that you need to write. I think we both want to be clear here you should be getting all your applications done before you get decisions because it is no matter what you expect, no matter if it was a flyer that you were throwing out there, like, I don't think this is going to happen, but I going to throw it out there. The second you press submit, you start to believe it's going to happen. And when you hear no, that is very hard. And, Uh, I've seen kids who knew that it was probably going to be no still be really heartbroken by a no. And you know what you don't want to be doing? Writing application essays for schools that you really like, that you have a good shot at getting into from a position of total and utter disappointment and you kind of don't even care anymore. Or
3: panic. Right? Yeah. Or worse, you're panicking and now you're freaking out and you've lost your confidence. That's also terrible right.
1: all of these things terrible yeah. get it done before you hear and then feel good about the work that you've done feel confident that you have put your best work on paper and the only way to do that is to be working on it steadily and be in the right frame of mind and you I have never met a student who was in the right frame of mind after they got denied from their early choice so all right early decision Same thing, right? You could get an accept, you could get a defer, you could get a deny. One thing I will throw out there for everyone is that not all schools deny in the early rounds. Um, Not all schools defer in the early rounds, right? So we know some schools that either do admit or deny, and then we know schools that either do admit or defer. And so if you don't get in, they just move everybody who doesn't get into the regular pool, or they make the decision right then. And if you're not in, you are... You're out. (laughs) So anyway, let's go to early decision. Um, Same thing, right? You could get one of three decisions depending on the school. What do they mean in an early decision context?
3: So you're admitted. You're going. Like, congrats. You're in. (laughs) Big difference. You need to enroll at that school. Um, I will say, to your point earlier, Beth, my student who was admitted early decision at Tulane yesterday only had one supplement remaining for his regular decision list, so he did a lot of work that he likely didn't need to do. But I think the fact that he did it contributed. You know, he's on top of the on top of the ball. Um, then deny you're you're out. It's over. Yes. You you can't submit a second application. You can't apply regular decision now. You're you're done. Yes. Um. So it's time to just say goodbye to that school and then defer same thing as early action if you're deferred in early decision you're being moved into the regular decision pool one thing that's good to i think people get confused about is if you're deferred in early decision your early decision agreement is now gone yes right that is so important. like you don't you don't have to go to that school if you're admitted in regular decision you you get to make a choice again
1: Exactly. And yeah, I mean, I think the key element, right, for early decision, if you're in what, like what you said, you're going and you need to withdraw all your other applications, that's the agreement that you made um, with that institution. But if they opt not to take you in that early round and defer the decision, then all bets are off. Now, anything else is available to you. We get, I've seen, too, confusion around, well, can I apply early decision, too? I didn't get a decision from my early decision one school. Well, you did get a decision. They decided not to make a decision yet. And that means that the binding portion of the agreement is completely over. So, yeah.
3: Any Anything else that you would add before we wrap up? I, I would just add that if you are in early decision, you still need to like fill out your enrollment form. You still need to submit a deposit. You still need to probably keep even more of an eagle eye on your email inbox for forms, because you're going to have a longer wait. A lot of that that stuff, that kind of administrative stuff is going to come to you in April. So you're not going to hear from this school for a while, which can feel weird, but you need to keep on top of what they need you to do to actually formally accept their offer of admission, even though it is binding. Right. Exactly. So
1: you can't just assume, all right, I'm in. Then they know I'm coming and everything. Nope. There is stuff for you to do. And really quickly, I would add that for some early action schools, they are going to start to send you a lot of forms that are going to look really official, right? That they're going to want you to fill out. Any quick advice on
3: that really quickly? We have literally 30 seconds. (laughs) You have until May 1st to make your choice. Right. Like you you don't need to do anything until May 1st. Don't let them intimidate you into making an earlier decision if you don't want to
1: that's exactly right maybe you want to do a housing deposit and but look at the fine print sometimes that will be refundable if it's not refundable then that's a decision as a family to make Um, but you are exactly right do not let them pressure you into giving them an earlier answer because that's not part of the agreement of early action right Right. so all right abigail thank you so much for being here today i really appreciate it thank you it's so much fun Yes. Well, and we love having you. We love doing these. Um, Next week, Ian is going to be here um, hosting and they're talking about the supplements for Elon and University of Miami, the one in Florida, Um, what to do if you're deferred. So we talked a lot about what to expect next week. We're going to dig into that and also um, how to keep those scholarship and financial aid flowing. I believe that's If you've gotten some already and now you're going to be a sophomore in school, we're going to be talking about how do you ensure that that money's still coming in. Um, And don't forget, check out our blog, blog blog.getintocollege.com. And we're here every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach.